Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. For 10 years, there was a feud that raged between the church father, Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate, which was the translation in the church for three or four centuries. And his feud was with the great uh, pastor, scholar, Augustine over Jerome's interpretation of Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. Now that text has implications for the passage that we have just come through, but that's not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is the feud that both of these men were involved in. Now, the feud wasn't because they didn't like each other. Jerome at one point wrote of Augustine, how I wish that I could receive your embrace and enter into deep conversation with you. Augustine also stated of Jerome, there is no place in the world I would rather be than at your side studying with you. Yet, their disagreement prevented both men from accepting the other for 10 years. That's quite a feud, right? Conflict is an unfortunate reality of our fallen, sinful human existence. And we see it here in our text today. We see it here even in the early church among the apostles and the Christian leaders in Antioch. At times, despite that conflict, God is at work and he supernaturally uses those Failures. He uses those conflicts of men to accomplish his greater purpose. So what I want you to observe with me this morning as we walk through this passage is this. Despite conflicts, despite changes, despite unexpected obstacles, God is faithfully guiding. But the real issue is this. Will you follow God is at work. God is directing. God is is giving you exactly what you need and all that you need to obey, to, to, to follow. But will you follow? That's the issue. Now remember, as we uh, look at this book together, uh, we began it several months ago in February. As you know, it's the second longest Uh, book in the New Testament. It's the second longest book that Luke has written. It is the ongoing story from Luke's gospel, and it is written to give the continuing story. Remember, verse 1, chapter 1, this is the rest of the story of all that Jesus began to do and teach, and I told you about that in the gospel of Luke. The theme throughout is that the disciples, the apostles, will have power from the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they'll be witnesses. And they'll be witnesses first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So again, despite conflict, despite change, despite unexpected obstacles, God is 
faithfully guiding. So the first thing that we need to consider this morning is the relationship and the conflict that Luke records for us in verses 35 to 41. Now, remember the beginning. What starts this conflict? It's the suggestion by Paul, let's go back out, verse 35, and check on all the churches. Let's go back out and see how everybody's doing that we shared the gospel with that started uh, or that believed and the churches that were started, etc., etc. So Paul says, hey, let's go back out and check. And verse 36, Barnabas says what? Okay, great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. And Paul's face stiffens, right? And he says, uh-uh, no, no, no. We are not taking John Mark. John Mark left us, and John Mark's not going again. So what we learn from this, in some respects, Paul wasn't big on second chances, I don't think. You know what I'm saying? He says, no, he is not going. Now, what happens from this, if you note, verse 38, Paul thought it best not to take him because he had withdrawn. And verse 39, we reach the climax. And these two, between them, there arose this sharp disagreement to the extent that they separated from each other. Now, a couple of things are really, really interesting here. Number one, a sharp disagreement. And and when we read that, we think in our minds, what is that? Well, it's very unique. It's only used two times in our New Testament. It's used here. And you know the other time it's used? It's used in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember the section where the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You're supposed to come together. What are you supposed to do when you come together? Challenge each other, right, about your walk with the Lord. That idea of challenge, it's a positive side of this same word. That's the word. There there is supposed to be some real, in a sense, friction as we encourage and trying to engage one another to grow in our walk with Jesus. Now, on the negative side of this word, this word is so strong that it could go as far as including shouting at one another. Now, the text doesn't tell us that. Uh, The underlying word, there's the implication of that. So so we're not going to say that this morning, but I want you to consider in your own life, have you ever had a disagreement so strong That there was shouting involved? Has that ever happened to you? Well, whether they did or they didn't, this is a serious conflict. And it's such a serious conflict that literally the solution is, we are not going back out together. I will not go with you and John Mark, Paul says. And Barnabas says, I will not go with you without him. And one of them said, then we're not going together. Or maybe they said it simultaneously. Now think through this relationship for a moment. Again, many times as we read this, we forget the time frames. At this point in Paul and Barnabas' relationship, they are parting after a 12-year relationship. And think about the beginning of the relationship. Barnabas comes into contact with Paul and the church in Jerusalem is terrified of Paul 
And Barnabas takes up for Paul and says, hey, this is a different guy. This is a different guy than the one who stood at the stoning of Stephen and held all the coats and then went all the way up to Damascus to chase believers down and bring them back to Jerusalem to persecute them. This is a different guy. That's the beginning of Paul and Barnabas. I mean, folks, have you ever traveled with somebody? It, it, it reorients the relationship that you have with them. I, I remember my mom telling me that. She says, before you get married, you need to go on a trip with your potential spouse. If you can survive that, or maybe if she can survive that, that's a good sign, right? When you travel with somebody, it, there's, there's stuff that gets forged there. there. There's things that happen that are unique to you and the trip. Think about that. For Paul and Barnabas. And they literally, at this point, they split. We are not traveling together anymore. We're done. Now again, in some respects, this is just a snippet. Right? This is just this tiny little piece. And it's going to be important later on. It's going to, in some ways, it kind of loosely explain some stuff that will happen. All right? But right now, it's just this little piece. Sharp disagreement, they're not traveling together. That's it. Now, for all of us, what is our immediate thought? Several things. Number one, this is a huge conflict. It's the first one, right? It's the first conflict. Actually, it's not. If you remember back in chapter 6, remember we have the Hellenist widows? And, and there's a conflict there. They're not being taken care of. But what happened? The conflict was addressed and it was resolved. Chapter 11, we have some folks after chapter 10, Peter engages Cornelius and Cornelius believes, right? The centurion and his whole house and they're all Gentiles. And so some Jewish believers, they hear about, they say, that, that's not right. They, they can't believe. They can't just come in. Luke goes back, or excuse me. Luke records for us that Peter goes back to Jerusalem and says, no, 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 this is true. And what does, by some miracle, what does Peter have with him that he took uh, to Capernaum as he goes to Cornelius? Six Jews. And Peter, that makes seven. It's like this irrefutable witness in a court of law, right? Seven witnesses. And the seven witnesses together, they say what? Yeah, hey, they believe. Hey, they got the Holy Spirit, just like we got the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? Again, the conflict is resolved. Chapter 15, we have these guys that come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. They say, you can't be a follower of Jesus if you're not first, in essence, a Jewish proselyte, a Jewish convert. You can't follow Jesus. And Paul says, no, no, no. Paul and Barnabas say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. And they go down to Jerusalem. They have this discussion. Peter gives his testimony. James gives kind of the final word. That's it. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are going to go out and tell people. And now they have their conflict. So we've seen conflict in Acts. But this conflict is the first one that occurs between individuals. It's not factions in the church. This is two guys. This is the first conflict, though, that's recorded for us that goes unresolved. There's no resolution in Acts for this conflict. Now, 
By implication, we can figure out later on, Paul must have changed his mind a little bit about John Mark because remember in 2 Timothy, he's saying to Timothy, hey, come see me. I don't know how close I am to the end. Come see me. And hey, bring John Mark because he's profitable for the ministry. So Paul changed his mind, right? But in this scenario, in Acts, this doesn't get resolved. Another note that's difficult for us is we want to know who was right. Who was right and who was wrong? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? Maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe Barnabas was wrong. Well, there are several things that are important for us to grasp. First of all, though a lot of commentators have a lot to say about that, Luke doesn't. Luke does not take a side. Luke doesn't tell us Paul got it and Barnabas missed it. And some commentators suggest that Luke is taking a side because he says the brothers commended them, Paul and Silas, they commended them uh, to the grace of the Lord and, and they went out. And so they're saying, well, see, the brothers commended them. I don't think that's Luke's point. I don't think Luke's saying they commended them and they didn't commend Barnabas and John Mark. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what we have is the the track that we've had throughout Acts. You have the following of wherever the message is going. And so initially, it's following Peter. It follows Philip at one point. Why to follow Philip? He wasn't even an apostle. Why don't we follow? Because it's not a biography. It's tracking the spread of the gospel, the advance of the church in its first 30 years years or so. And that's why it follows Paul. So I don't think that's evidence. Paul was right. Barnabas was wrong. Several things that are important for us to note here about conflict. And I want you to catch this. Please do not miss this. All right. Number one. One of the things that comes out of this conflict is that neither one of these guys was perfect. Neither one of these guys was was flawless. Think about this for a moment. They're both fallen, sinful men. And they evidence that in the conflict. Without pride, Proverbs tells us there is no conflict. Both of these men were proud and both of these men were sinful in their response to each other. Both were wrong in their attitude and both were wrong in their behavior. And you say, how can you say that? Because this was a conflict that led to no resolution, at least not recorded for us in Acts. That's an issue. The third thing that I want you to observe, though, is that the mighty work throughout this book, especially in their lives, is not being accomplished by their power. It's not being accomplished by their ability. It's not being accomplished by their devotion. And listen to me. If we are not careful, we look at Paul and Peter and Barnabas and we say, wow, I want to be like that guy. I mean, I don't know if you say that, but I've thought that many times. I want to be like that guy. But here's the reminder. It's not them. It's not them that's accomplishing this powerful work. The work is being accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God. It's being accomplished through the name of Jesus at work among them. This is God's work. It's not Paul's work. It's not Barnabas' work. 
This is God's word. And what's fascinating to observe, and don't miss this, this truth is the same for you and me today. The exalted Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he uses even human shortcomings and failures to advance his great purpose and accomplish his plan. Folks, we cannot ever forget that God's work is in spite of us, not because of us, right? And if we're not careful, you know what? There's a lot of times we can think in our mind, man, look at that. Look what I did. Even in our homes, right? Uh, uh, as a dad, as a husband, as, as a, a father, as a neighbor, we can think in our minds, man, wasn't that nice of me? Wasn't that a great dad moment? Wasn't I good, right? Those are the moments that we have to remember. That was probably in spite of me, not because of me. You know, that, that's God's gracious work through me, not because I'm naturally gracious. <laughs> that's not true. It's just not. And we're reminded of that in this conflict. Whatever good is accomplished here, it's because of God. It's because of his amazing work. On the flip side, you know what? Many times we learn the most from our failures. We learn the most from our struggles, oftentimes far more than we do from our successes. Many times our successes cause us to pat ourselves on the back, right? Man, yeah, I, I really did do a good job at that. When we fail, we're thinking, why did that happen? Why, what, what, went wrong? what horrible wrong turn did I take? You know, I, I had a fail or two. Uh, driving over the past 10 days and I would realize it way too far into the the trip you know one one time uh, the app I was using was set not to take certain roads and I I I didn't figure it out one of my tech savvy children figured it out and I said what how did that happen right well because I don't know what I'm doing you know (laughs) and folks that's the reality when we fail, it causes us to say, ah, what happened? Why did that, what went wrong? Failures are often far more profitable for us than our great successes in our mind. One of the things that we often do is kind of deify these past historical figures in Christianity, even in our Bible. Martin Luther, in writing, in one of his statements, he said of himself, and I found this, first of all, fascinating that he would characterize himself this way, and also, to be honest with you, incredibly encouraging, all right? He says of himself, I am rough, I am boisterous, I am stormy, I am altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and demons, I am born for removing for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. I bet sitting down to lunch with that guy was fun. You know what I mean? But you know what? A lot of times we think of them as elevated, you know? But even Luther understood who he was. He understood his own struggles. He understood his own shortcomings. Luther, too, had a famous feud with the, uh, another great reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, and their feud was over the Lord's table. Uh, the feud was Luther believed that the cup actually became the blood of Jesus. And Zwingli said, no, 
no, no, no, no, it doesn't. Uh, and that feud was never resolved. Luther said, no, you're wrong. And Zwingli said, no, you're wrong. And as we know and consider the Lord's table together today, we know Zwingli got that one right, right? But that's how it is. When we kind of pick a side and dig our heels in, it's hard for us to see straight. So we move on. The second thing, Luke now continues the work, and he continues the really here at the beginning of chapter 16 is the beginning of the second missionary journey. And at the beginning, he tells us kind of the process of where they're going. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of things on here. First of all, this is the, the larger map, and, and you can see some of this. You've got the Jerusalem Council down here. They go from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they're going to launch from here. Here is Lystra and Iconium. This is where they pick up Timothy. Now, I flew up the top so you can hopefully see it a little better. Um, Paul asked Timothy to follow here. Now, what I want you to observe in the first verses, they're going to go to Phrygia here and Galatia. This is, this is the, the Asia part, this way. No. Now, listen, listen. How, how did the Spirit tell them no? Luke doesn't tell us that. We, we don't know how they were instructed away from those areas. But we do know they were. By the guidance of God, the Spirit of God. No, don't go there. Okay, we want to go up into here. Bithynian, Pontus, Pontus, right? And, and what happens? No, no, don't go there. Okay, we won't go there. So we're going to head to this region of Mysia, to this specific town of Troas, and this is where the vision comes, right? So when they are in Iconium and Lystra, they pick up this young man, Timothy. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about picking up Timothy is Paul gets this young guy, and again, we have a couple descriptions of him, He's the son of a Greek man, and he is the son of a Jewish mom. Now, why is that significant? I'll tell you in a minute. Paul takes Timothy, and the first thing he does is circumcise him. Why? Because all the Jews in the region know that he is the son of a Jewish woman. So Paul takes him and circumcises him. Now, in Galatians... We also have a young man who is a Greek. His name is Titus. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3, uh, those who are opposing Paul in Galatia, they say, you've got to circumcise Titus. And what does Paul say? Well, you would assume, based on what he does with Timothy, that he says what? Well, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll circumcise. What does Paul say? No! No! We're not circumcised. He refuses so he does with Timothy, he does it with Titus. What? Why? Right? Okay, so there's all kinds of, of, of reasoning. There's all kinds of, of, of thoughts about why he does one and why he doesn't do the other. I think this is fascinating in studying several years ago, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says in there, I become all things to all men so that I might by all means win some. Now, for some of us, we read that, and if somebody said that in our modern-day vernacular, depending on who it was, we would say, that guy's a compromiser, right? He's going to become all things to all men. 
I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul's point there is, is simply within reason, if something is a stumbling block, I'm going to set it aside. It doesn't mean I'm going to set aside the deity of Jesus. That's not within reason, right? So, so I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Paul does the one because it's a stumbling block and the other because it's uh, because he's not going to get bossed around, right, in Galatia. I don't think that's the issue. This is a really interesting issue. So I think that Luke gives us the solution as he introduces Timothy. Look back at verse 1, and what does he say first? This is not normal, but how does he introduce Timothy? He's the son of what? You wouldn't expect mom to be first, but he puts mom first. He's the son of a Jewish woman who is a believer, so, in the first century, the thought was, if a Jewish lady has married a Gentile man, that, the, the offspring, they are still by default, even though it's just a mom involved, right? Which, to some, years before, that didn't matter. If, if, even if there's a Jewish mom, they're still not Jewish. But by the first century, that had shifted. That had shifted. So the connection of Timothy and Jewish mom means Timothy needs to fulfill these basic tenets of the law. Why? So that he isn't a stumbling block to all the Jews in Christian congregations who know well that his dad was Greek and that he hadn't gone through this circumcision before. That hadn't happened. So the reason is, I think, to take away that stumbling block for other Jewish believers. And to be honest with you, there's a boatload there we could discuss in our Q&A. In some respects, this follows immediately on the heels of uh, chapter 15, 1 to 35. You don't have to be circumcised to be in. However... Still in these early days, if you were a Jew, you still partook of, you still were doing some of these basic tenets of the law. Why? Because you're a Jew. So the confusion for us is if Gentiles don't have to do it, why would Jews have to do it, right? Because the point is, Acts 15, 1 to 35, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. At the same time, Jews don't have to become Gentiles. You see? It, it goes both ways. So it's not as if with Acts 15, we're doing away with everything that's Jewish. No, 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 no. You still have a heritage. You still have uh, the, the way that you're brought up. You still have like uh, Jewish expectations. Paul says all those are fine. Keep doing those. It's just that the Gentiles don't have to do those to be part of the church. Just like the Jews don't have to not do any of them to be part of the church. This is the beauty, in some respects, of being a follower of Jesus. I don't have to divorce my heritage, right? I don't have to say, well, I was born in England, but I can't be English anymore in order to be a follower of Jesus. No, 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 that's not true. And that's the issue. I don't have to be not Chinese to follow Jesus. Nope, that's not true. I don't have to not be African or Australian, right, or Brazilian. I don't have to be any of those in order to follow Jesus. No, that's not true. You can be Brazilian and follow Jesus. You can be Australian and follow Jesus. 
That's the point of Acts 15. I don't have to become something to be a follower of Jesus. And that doesn't change with this issue. So as Luke finishes that issue, he says they deliver the message from Acts 15. They explain that to the churches. And then, and then they continue strengthening the churches in their faith. And as they do, the churches flourish. The churches are again growing daily. And that is a theme throughout the book of Acts. There is just this supernatural working of God whereby the churches are expanding and growing regularly all the time. Okay. The last section, the direction and the specific calling of God. Luke is going to explain here the guidance of God for the next phase of ministry. And this is very, very important because of its implications for us. Because of what this means to us for us. So first of all, if you remember, God forbids them to go here or here, to the right or to the left, right? Instead, God says, go west, you three. Well, one of you is young, a couple of you are a little older, right? You old guys and young guys, go go west, right? So they get here to Troas in this region of Mysia. This is where the vision comes. Now, likely, they're not thinking, we've got to go over here and minister over here. But God, in a sense, divinely directs them. Paul has this dream. Paul interprets the dream as this is God's call to go into uh, Macedonia. Now, what's amazing, and we studied through this a couple years ago, but we have Thessalonica here, Right? Uh, we have Berea here. They're run out of Thessalonica and they're run out of Berea. And Paul goes and hangs out down here in Athens while they go back up and minister. Silas and Timothy, because I guess they weren't the lightning rod Paul was, you know what I mean? He must have been really noticeable, you know? So they go back up and minister here, if you recall from our study, while Paul is down here waiting for them in Athens and Corinth and continuing his work. And that's how... Uh, Acts 17 comes, I think they've gone back and Paul's there and he's going to continue to preach the word. So, several things about God's direction. Number one, and we have to remember this, this is something I don't want us to forget. As we walk through the book of Acts, there is this tendency for us to look at some of these scenarios and say, okay, so that's how it's going to look for me. We have to remember that some of these things are pre, are descriptive. They are not prescriptive. They are descriptive. Luke is simply telling us what happened. He's not saying, this is how God's going to lead you. God is going to lead you through a dream or a vision in the middle of the night. Now, the reason that I know that in part is because of the rest of our Bible. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to think, some of you, about some of the dreams you may have had in the last week. Right? In the last month. Some of you, you've had some crazy dreams. How's God leading you through that? He's not. Congratulations. He is not. And that's an important thing for us to grasp is how does God lead? How does God work today? So very briefly, I want to run through, and I genuinely mean briefly, we're going to run through a review. How do we know God's will? How do you know how today, in 2023, to determine the will of God. So I want you to watch this. 
Uh, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, think about this. At many times and in many ways. That many ways, it describes what? Dreams, visions, right? Um, he spoke in a myriad of ways through the prophets. And that's what he's doing here in Acts 16. He's speaking through one of these ways. But in these last days, that's not how he's speaking any longer. He speaks to us by his son. How do you better understand his son? The right answer throughout this is going to be the word. The word, right? That's how you better understand the son. Okay. Uh, David, in his writing, Psalm 48, he has the expectation that God does have a plan. God does have a plan for your life and for mine. That this is God. He is our God forever and ever, and he will what? Guide us forever. And the Septuagint, the way that this is translated, he'll guide us forever, is that he'll guide us even beyond death. So God, God's not abandoning you even at that point. He's still going to be your God. Isn't that good news, right? Uh, now, for some of us, that may not be as good of news because in our minds, is God a good guy? Can I trust him? Am I following him? So, yeah, for some, that's terrifying news, right? But no, if you're, if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, boy, is that good news. He doesn't abandon you the day you take your last breath. Uh, uh, Solomon addresses this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. That is so hard. Isn't it? Because all of us, we know so much. And what we don't know, we can Google. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. One of the keys to this is understanding one of the keys to understanding this text in particular is the idea that when I lean on my own understanding for choices, decision, direction, what happens? My path isn't straight. My path can get really twisted and messed up, right? So I must lean on him. Not my understanding. Uh, Jesus had this understanding. Even in his earthly life, Jesus says, my food is to what? It's to do the will of him that sent me. That, that's the goal. Do the will of him that sent me. He says the same thing in John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will. The divine second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, understood that the Father had a specific plan and he yielded himself to his plan. If Jesus got that, don't you think we should get that? In chapter 6, verse 38 to 40, you can see each of these and I highlighted them so they jump out. But he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me. Look down at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. God has a will. He has a plan for you, for me. He has a plan. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, we see the same thing. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. But while they were worshiping the Lord fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. 
Well, who did that? The, the Spirit did. This was His will and plan. And what did the church do? That after fasting and praying, they, they laid hands on them, they sent them out. Why? Because that was God's will. They just followed, they obeyed. Right? Paul understood this. And in each of these is similar. We'll just read the first one, but each is, it, it, it follows through the same idea. Paul, called by the will of God. Paul says, listen, I'm an apostle for one reason. It's the will of God. That's it. That's it. It's not because I'm qualified. It's not because I'm smarter than you, even though that may have been true. That is not why. It's because it is the will of God. God had a specific plan for Paul. And he does for you. He does for me, right? James says the same thing. Instead, you ought to say what? If the Lord wills. If this is part of God's plan, then this is what I will do or won't do. So, uh, Romans chapter 2, how do we know God's will then? Well, this is interesting. Because Paul tells us in Romans 2, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and what? If you rely on the law and, and you know God, you boast in God, then what's going to happen? The natural outcome of that is you know His will, and you approve what is excellent. Because why? You're instructed by the law. You're instructed by the word. Listen to me. You want to know God's will? There it is. That's how you know it. Through the word. You need the word. I need the word. But listen to me. You can engage the word and still not know God's will. Why? Because you don't obey it. You don't do it. You don't respond in submission to it. Right? So biblical decision making comes down to then applying any and every specific verse to that specific scenario. And folks, there are specific scenarios. For instance, I wake up this morning, it's pouring rain. I do not want to get up. I literally drove to church today and I thought in my mind, this is why people stay in their bed on Sundays. This right here, it's dark. You could, you could sleep for hours, I bet, right? And not be disturbed one bit. And yet, Hebrews 10, 23, 24, 25, it says what? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. There are some people that is their approach. I don't want to go. I don't feel like it. It's not convenient. I'm not going. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, don't do that. You need the body. You need the body. Don't forsake Together. So that, that's specific. I don't have to wake up this morning and say, it is pouring rain, and boy, is this bed comfy. I don't have to think about that. Hop up and get ready and glad to see you, right? You didn't have to think about that. However, there are principles in the Word that don't necessarily address a specific scenario, but I can get guidance from them. For instance, honor mom and dad, that, that's an easy one. So I have a scenario in my life, and I want to do this, and mom and dad say, ooh, I'd be careful. I'd, 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 be, I'd be wary of that. Honor. So how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, you already know you're to honor mom and dad. It doesn't mean if you uh, are, are called to ministry and your parents say, you'll never make any money at that, you can't do that. Well, yeah, that's a different thing. But as your parents are obedient to God, and by God's grace, you are obedient to God, and they say, oh, I'd be careful of that, well, then you follow. That's an easy one in some respects. Uh, it, it feels like as you get older that it gets harder, right? 
But the applying of God's principles are the same. That's second step in the process, third step. Either way, whichever it hits, if there's a specific work or a principle, what, was, what, what do we do? We must be focused on and committed to applying God's work. You have to do it. You will not do the will of God if you don't obey the word of God. It's not possible. They go together. Right? So, several implications. And these are very, very important because they, they fly in the face of what some of you have been taught about the will of God. Right? So number one, we don't find God's will by looking for open doors. How do you know that? Look at Acts 16. They had an open door to Phrygia, right? In Galatia. They had an open door. Paul, why aren't you in Galatia? It's an open door. Because that's not what God wanted us. Right? So open doors are not all I'm looking for. And a lot of people... At times, they look at God's will through circumstances. Open door. Second, they find God's will by looking at circumstances. What's going on around you? What's happening? What's, what's going on in the world, right? I'm trying to feel this out. No, that's not, how we, that's not how we find God's will. Number three, we don't find God's will by analyzing the results. So this happened and this happened. Our world is quickly turning into analytics on everything. Everything. It's, it's shocking to me. They talk about this with sports all the time, analytics. I, I don't understand that, right? There are factors in there that you, the analytics aren't going to account for, but it, everything's analytics, and it's everywhere. It's in sales, it's in marketing, it's in production, it's in sport, it's everywhere. And you know what? The tendency is for believers to say, okay, let me look at the results. Let's look at the results, right? And we do that even in, in relation to the church. That church is really big. They've got to be doing God's will. Really? Is that true? That one's not as big. Well, maybe. Well, maybe they are doing God's will. You know. Or maybe they have a different philosophy. Okay. Uh, number four. We don't find God's will based on our feelings. Well, I feel like this. That's not a good measure. It's not a good measure. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What that means is you don't even have the capacity to rightly interpret your own heart. You need to beware. That's why we have an objective standard like the Bible, like God's word. It protects us from the feeling. I feel like this today. Beware, right? Number five, we don't find God's will by putting out a fleece. You say, well, Gideon did. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. You say, well, yeah, he did. He put out a fleece like three times. Stop and think about the story for a moment. Remember the story of Gideon? God comes to Gideon and he says what? Gather up an army because you're going to go take down the Midianites. And what does Gideon say? Oh, no. No, I'm not. I'm right now, I'm hiding, in essence, in a basement. I'm not going to take on the Midianites. And God says, okay. So, so what, do you, what do you want? What, what, what proof do you want? I'll tell you what, I'm going to lay out the sheepskin thing, and, and you get the sheepskin wet and not the grass, right? And then the next time he switches it, get the grass wet and not the sheepskin. So God does it every time. But the issue was never for Gideon, how do I know God's will? No, you know God's will. That's it. You're just putting God to the test. And let me tell you, that's not a good plan. 
God was gracious with Gideon, and God is always gracious with us, but that's not how we find God's will, right? Gideon knew God already spoke, do this, and Gideon was afraid, right? So God reveals his word to us, or his will to us in the word. Number one, you know this for sure. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be rescued from your sin. He wants you to be a believer. Number two, he wants you to be sanctified and to abstain from immorality. He literally says that in 1 Thessalonians 3. To be sanctified. He wants you growing in Christ. Listen to me. If you as a believer can look at your life and say, I haven't grown spiritually for six months. Listen carefully. You're not in the will of God. Period. That's it. End of discussion. Bible clearly says it. That's it. Number three, it's God's will that you be spirit-filled. What does that mean? It means control. Simply means allowing him to guide, direct, control, speak to you through the word, challenge you through the word, right? What comes out of a person that's spirit-controlled? They're speaking to themselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. doesn't mean you know all the words, but it means when we sing them, they're ministering to you. When you listen on your own, it's ministering to you. Grace, right? Singing, making melody in your heart, giving thanks, always and everything. Folks, listen, do you realize it's God's will for you to be thankful? Even in America, in 2023, right? When everything's not going this way, that way, by way, I don't know. Still calls us, demands. It's God's will for you to be thankful. Number four, it's God's will for you to submit. Submit to God and others. And last of all, it's God's will for that you would be ready, willing to suffer persecution work. He literally says it. All who live God in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. So for us today, for you today, are you following the will of of God? Are you living out the will of God? Are you following his guidance, his direction? Hopefully you can see as we look at the whole. Despite the conflicts, despite the changes, despite the, the unexpected obstacles for them. Hey, we thought we were going here. We tried to go here. No, we can't go anywhere. Oh, we're supposed to go to Macedonia. God is faithfully guiding. And the issue for you is simple. Will you follow? Will you follow him? I read a great story this week, and this is how computers were for me a a very long time ago. They're not that way anymore. They they, they kind of have kidnapped them, I feel like. But way back in the day, you could kind of manipulate your computer, and eventually you could kind of figure out how to make something work the way you wanted it to work. Well, one pastor, uh, one day he was dealing with his, his MacBook, and as he's working on it, there was a program, a Bible program that was designed for MacBook, and it wasn't working. And it just wasn't, he spent a whole day trying to make this program work and everything he did failed and everything he tried, it, it just would not work. So the next morning he gets up and he's just frazzled and, and his wife says to him, you know you, what you could do? You know, this is something a wife would say to her husband. You could call the place that made it and ask them for help, you know. And the husband, no, no, who does that, you know. Well, eventually he's so frazzled, he calls and he speaks to somebody, a very friendly voice says, well, you know what, I can connect you. I'm going to give you a number for the person I know that can help you. They will be able to help you. Well, when she gave him this number, the, the name was kind of rang a bell. He was like, I've heard that name 
somewhere before, but I wonder, I wonder who that is. So he gives the number a call, and as he gives the number a call, he gets out his, his box that he had bought with the program, and on the front of the box, there's, the, there's this name. It's the name of the guy he's calling. They've given him the name of the programmer who designed the software, right? And so he's on the phone with this guy. He's like, hey, I'm having this problem. And, and the guy says, okay, write this down. Do this, do this, do this, and it should work. She hangs up with the guy. He does his steps. And in moments, his program is flying along, doing exactly what he wants it to do. How many times in life do you respond exactly like him? I know what's best. I know how to solve it. I know I can control. If I can keep this under my control, it will work out. Folks, that's not how God works. God is guiding and directing. And the issue is, will you follow? Today, if you are not a believer... You can't enjoy that the way a believer will and can. So first, you must turn to Jesus in faith. But if you are a believer today, God made you. He knows you. He knows how you'll function best. He actually knows what he made you to do. Will you follow? Will you submit? Will you allow him to direct your life? He's ready. He's given you what you need. Will you heed him? Will you follow those instructions? Let's bow and ask God to give us grace.